Welcome to the 18th podcast in our sermon series, Finding Jesus in Ecclesiastes. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. This was live streamed on a very cold Sunday, January the 27th at 10 a.m. from our YouTube channel. Join us as Bruce Bentley continues our series with a sermon titled, Go Remembering God. I want to start off with something happy, warm, inviting. You can almost feel the warm breeze, the green trees, the happy brook babbling past you. This is an image taken from our camp out this past summer. So as I was trying to find something happy and warm to begin with, I was going through some pictures that I took. I can't remember what river this is, but this was... Uh, just upstream from where we're jumping off of a cliff. How many people jumped off a cliff? Kathy, I know you did. Yeah, right? You lived to tell the tale. What an awesome thing, right? You can go on the camp out this coming summer in July, see happy, pleasant places like this, and if you want to, jump off a cliff. Now, you don't have to do that. You may be labeled weak if you don't, but that's up to other people. I will not judge you. Uh, But it was a blast. So, there are a number of things coming up in spring and summer that maybe you've noticed in the bulletin and our calendar. Uh, that is one of them. Just take note of that, okay? Because before you know it, it's going to be, maybe it's already past time for you to choose what days you got off for vacation. Uh, and yeah, before you know it, it's spring and then it's too late. So, take note of the dates. Uh, think about it individually, family, whatever, what you're doing, and also think about getting involved in some of those things coming up as we celebrate as a family what we can do together as a church. So that's the happiness. We're going to go to gray there, now back to reality, snowy, frozen, lifeless reality. This is going to be a wicked week, right? If you're watching the, you're watching the, the, the weather forecast tonight, and will the governor call school off? Who thinks he'll do it? Okay, I'm kind of leaning towards that too. With all this buildup, it's almost like he can't, right? I get. We'll see. So, quick recap of where we've been the last couple weeks. Uh, I've been building up to chapters 11, chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, kind of the therefore of this book. All the things that we've talked about. What it is. What has it been there for? So, a couple weeks ago, we talked about how we are to go boldly in this life in our faith. Uh, the verse, verse 11 of chapter 11, casting your bread upon the waters, uh, putting yourself out there, going boldly in faith. That was that message. And then we added another layer about going joyfully, rejoicing in your youth. And I pointed out, I'll point it again, youth means whoever you are right now. It's all relative, right? So where you're at, if you're alive, if your heart is beating and you are breathing right now, somebody can take a pulse next to you. Uh, you are alive, you are the youth. You've got an opportunity to use what you've been given. And even if you think it's little, well, a little is a lot in God's eyes. Uh, The way he's blessed you to go uh, in a way that is joyful, considering what he's given you, all the blessings that we have to put forth and to enjoy in this life that we have. So the last circle, as we move ever closer to the center is what we're going to talk about this morning, which is to go 
remembering God. So now we're uh, going over into chapter 12, which is the last chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. And you'll notice here that the flow of things is the center moving outward. So the preacher of Ecclesiastes starts with the bigger picture, I believe, and that idea of going boldly. But we do that in a joyful way. Why? How? Because we know God. We know who God is, and we choose to remember what we'll talk about this morning, who he is, and also keeping in mind who he isn't. The fact that we can go joyfully, we can even go boldly in our faith, all begins with this idea of remembering our Creator, which is chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. And then he goes on, we won't take the time to read verses 2 through 8, but he goes on in this very rich and deep poetic way of describing really the end of life. So, and he ends with that, with one last time speaking of vanity. So chapter 12, uh, you go through all these different poetic uh, metaphors uh, of what life looks like towards the end, okay? And then verse 8, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. That's the last time he says it. Many times, I didn't count them up, but many times throughout this book, he brings up meaningless. It's a vapor. It's all going to end. This is the last time he says it, when the only reason I bring that up is for this reason. There's a few more verses that we'll consider next week. Vanity does not have the final word. All that is difficult to grasp onto, to deal with, and some of you have dealt with some of the most difficult things, maybe with family members, maybe parents, maybe others. Um, For some of us, uh, maybe you're younger and all of this talk of end of life stuff is distant and that's somebody else and I'm young and I'll never die. Or maybe you're getting older and you have considered the fact that you won't live forever in a way that's a little more serious than others, and maybe you've walked the end-of-life kind of walk with some other people in your family or friends. So regardless of where you're at, vanity, meaningless, the end-of-life kind of stuff, the fact that it's all going to end, that's a reality in life under the sun. The preacher has made that, hopefully, if you've been with us, exceedingly clear. But that's not the end of the story. Death does not have the final word. And then the preacher will give us one more hint at the gospel at the end of chapter 12, which is next week. So we're not there yet. Where we are is this one verse. There's plenty in this one verse to give us uh, reason to stop and consider, okay? And it really all comes down to that first phrase, that first part of that verse. Remember also your creator. So what we're going to do as we start this morning is... Remember who our creator is, which is kind of a big, a big discussion point, right? So we'll begin with what the preacher has already said. If you've been here, we've covered this ground, uh, but it's already kind of in the past now. So at least three things that pop to mind, very important things as we look at what the preacher has emphasized. The first thing as we consider what he's teaching us about who God is, is chapter 3, verse 11, one of my favorite verses of this whole 
of this whole book, of this whole discussion that we've had. He says this, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has put in the heart of every man and woman and adult and child this longing, this realization that especially as we grow becomes bigger, becomes deeper, that there's got to be more than this life. And I believe that's a cross-cultural, that is, a, that is a everybody, every image of God person kind of thing. That there's something in you, even if life is really bleak and really harsh, but if you're still alive, there's something in you, even if you reject God outright, completely, but I'm still alive, why? <laughs> why am I getting up in the morning? There's something going on that's deeper, that's more significant than just getting a paycheck and just paying the bills and just getting the kids to school and just, you know, whatever it is that you do that you fill your calendar with. Life is bigger than that. It's more important than that. And God has put that in every heart, and he's made it, and he's done it in this beautiful, mysterious, longing, huge kind of way that keeps us going. There's got to be more. And we, I, don't, I know it's out there. I just can't quite reach it. I can't quite grasp it. I can't understand fully, completely what it is, but I know it's worth living. I know there's something to it. That's a God-purposeful thing that he's put into us as a part of his image. So that's part of what remembering who your creator is is about. He has a greater purpose. The second one, he made mankind good, and I keep settling for less. So chapter 7, verse 29 says this. See, the preacher says, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. From the very beginning, uh, the the first people, Adam and Eve, in the garden, he made upright. They had this perfect relationship with God, untainted by, by sin or disappointment or frustration or dysfunction of any kind, any shape. They had unbroken fellowship with God. He made man upright. But as we know with Adam and Eve, all through, well, this moment, we keep seeking out schemes. We try to put the equation together so that we're in charge, so that we have the advantage, so that we know what's going on, uh, that it's, it, it somehow works out in our favor, that is life and all the things that we do. That's the scheme. We, we'd say it different ways. We'd tweak it or adjust it or whatever, but ever since Adam and Eve starting, when they started to doubt if really God had their best purpose in mind, from that moment on, it's a part of all of us. The scheming that he mentions, it's ancient, but it's also modern. We're trying to figure it out in a way that puts us first, uh, the, the way that we have the advantage. And finally, his ways are beyond mine. Chapter 11, verse 5, as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones and the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. We just don't know yet. Now we're learning, we're expanding our knowledge, we're getting a better understanding of God, of how he's doing things, but we're still not to the point where we'd like to be. There's still a, uh, a, an element of mystery about 
the profound, full nature of God and, and how He works and what He does. So we've got to say that we don't know as much as what we'd like to or maybe as much as we think we do. I can't read that verse without thinking about uh, uh, the bones of a, the child within uh, the womb of a woman. Uh, Mitch mentioned as he prayed, and maybe you've seen in the news all the controversy being stirred up, uh, at least with some, it's, it's controversial, uh, what the state of New York did. Uh, little is known, back all the way back to 1973, the Roe v. Wade decision, little was known at that time regarding really what uh, makes up the core elements, the stuff, the genetic makeup of, of man, of humanity. There are many ways you can approach the argument and, and on the legal side of things, uh, but one thing that I, I find pretty compelling and what we know now that we didn't know in the 70s is now that we have the advantage of the, the, the genome has been mapped out. We know the DNA. We know what makes a person, what makes a human, a human. And because we know that, we can go all the way back to the moment of conception, and whether it's a zygote or an embryo or a fetus or whatever the terminology is, the stuff that makes a human a human, the genetic makeup, is there, right? It's, it, it's there, it's in the womb, what we add to that is growth and development and time, and then we've got a baby and a person that grows up and becomes old, God willing, someday. But all the genetic makeup is right there in the womb. We didn't know all that. The biology, the science, it wasn't there in 1973 leading to that decision. So one thing that we do know now is if... Uh, if you're wondering, if you're questioning, or if anybody's questioning, you know, it, it, what, what is that uh, pre-birth entity in a woman? Well, it's a human. And there's no denying the science of what that means. The DNA, the genetic makeup is all there. You add time and everything else, but it's still a human. So uh, what we see happening and what is taking place in our culture since 1973, the legalization of the ending of the life of a human because of a choice. And that's become part of our culture, that's part of our discussions, part of the language that we use. What we've learned about the science, I hope, can possibly push forward the more moral and ethical debate. Uh, where is it even possible in the legal code to decide to elect to end the life of a human? And where does that lead us as a society? That's where we've got to be talking. That's where we need to be discussing things. But even before all that, we see in this verse, and what, um, what the preacher is talking about is, as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones of the woman, uh, we can't really comprehend or grasp how God not just puts the genetic makeup together, the DNA together, but as he stamps his image on the new life of a person, making that you know, pre-born baby more than just, just, if I could say it like that, a human, 
but an image bearer that God has put his stamp on that little child, that little one, that God has said, all those things that we uh, affirm when we read that song, uh, that he has known all of us before we're ever born, that he has a plan, that he has knit us together in the womb, that that nothing is taken for granted and nothing's a surprise to God, that God has intentionally put his image on us, that there is a soul that is a part of every human being. And as we learn more, now we don't learn everything, we're going to grasp everything and how God works, but we have learned that, and it is important for us to take the next step in following through in what it is that we know. So that's kind of a tangent, sorry about that, but let's get back to the passage. All of these things that the, that the preacher is talking about, the greater purpose that God has uh, and uh, that his ways, even though we're starting to learn more, they're truly beyond our full comprehension and grasp. And we keep you know, settling or keep trying to scheme our way to God to try to figure things out. All of these point to our deeper need for the holy other, that is God. The deeper need that we have that as we continue on whatever, wherever life's journey takes us, there are times, there are moments, there are situations, there are circumstances uh, that, wow, we get smacked in the side of the head and we begin to realize that there's got to be something more. There's got to there's be something deeper and my scheme hasn't worked. Uh, and even though I'm learning and growing, there's something I'm still missing. That's where the preacher takes us throughout, the, throughout this entire book as he continues to enlighten us in a spiritual way. Uh, I read this uh, this past week that I thought was important enough to share it with you guys. Derek Kidner, uh, very influential in this entire series, in his book, The Message of Ecclesiastes, says, For our part, to remember him is no perfunctory or purely mental act. It is to drop our pretense of self-sufficiency, and commit ourselves to him. Such at least is what in Scripture it demands of man in his pride or his extremity. At its best and strongest, remembrance can be a matter of passionate fidelity. Okay? So hang that in your brain somewhere. Passionate fidelity. When remembrance means as much as this, there can be no half measures or temporizing. What he's trying to drive home is that idea that to remember God is far more than just an intellectual ascent, just uh, an academic understanding. We don't read the book of Ecclesiastes and come away with it with these points, now I understand this or that about God in a cold, formal, uh, bullet point fashion. You can't read this book and not wrestle with the realities and the harsh realities of life, how it continues sometimes in very frustrating, difficult ways, and then ends with the grave, and what's the point? Vanity. You can't read this book and start to get into it at, at any level without being frustrated with those things. To remember God is saying that I need to passionately commit my life to Him who has control over these things. That it's not just an open grave waiting for my body, that there is far more that we can actually rejoice in 
as we get to know the living God who is sovereign over all these things. So I hope at some level, as you've read through this book, that you haven't just ended with frustration here and there, that you're getting to see the point of God and what he's doing in your life. To remember him truly is beyond the academics. It is coming to that point where he's got it, I need it, I can't construct it any other way, I need to respond to him. Not just knowing more about him, but from my heart. Knowing that he has all things in the palm of his hand to simply return to him and to begin trusting that he's good enough, that he is sufficient for everything that I need, and that my pride in thinking that I need to be in control leads me nowhere. In fact, it just keeps leading to bashing my head on the wall in another dead-end kind of experience. Passionate fidelity. Uh, When I think of that, I think of another uh, Bible character, Maybe you're familiar with him. Uh, Let's read a little bit about what Jonah has to say. If you know the story of Jonah, he tried to avoid God. He tried to scheme his own way to avoid what God told him to do. He gets in a boat, goes the other direction. Uh, He eventually gets thrown off the boat, and God sends a fish, gobbles him up. You're familiar with that part. I think we all are. Pretty much everybody in our culture has heard something about Jonah. In chapter 2, Jonah is in the belly of the fish, and he then begins to become passionate, (laughs) okay, for good reason. He was about to be dead, and he's having his God moment, his come-to-God moment in that belly, and he begins to pray, and this is part of how he prays. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, okay? it's not He's realized at this point there's nothing else has saved me or is going to save me. My prayer came to you. He remembers God in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord and only to him. That's passionate. And that's fidelity. It's only God. He has come to that moment. It's got to be God and only him. And I am going to give my life to him and to his purposes. Have you had a Jonah moment in your life? I know many of you have. I've heard a lot of your stories. Uh, That moment where maybe you haven't been gobbled by a fish, okay? But something similar to that, where you've come to the end of the proverbial rope, when all the scheming and all the planning and all the contriving and all of that stuff, no matter what your age, but you realized that it's all going nowhere and my efforts are going to lead me even further nowhere and I need a Savior. Salvation is from Christ and only Him. That's a Jonah moment. Have you had that moment? Or maybe you're somewhere in, before that, so to speak, and still wondering uh, who God is and what He's like and why bad things continue to happen. That's okay. Because even, or I'd, I'd say in every church, even, there are people that 
or, or in that point where I'm still frustrated with that, I still haven't uh, brought that together, that's okay, because this book continues to lead us towards this point, okay? So, that's Jonah's moment. Maybe you've had that moment where you're, you know you're in the belly. Pre-te- there's no pretense. <laughs> there's no pretense when you're having your mountaintop experience in the belly. Uh, you become more familiar with the fact that I know life has an end, and the only way I'm saved is Jesus. So passion abounds when you're in the belly. Uh, it's far easier to be passionate where you're at that moment where Oh, I know, Lord, I need you. And I know I'm beginning to realize salvation only comes from you. But there are plenty of other times, so maybe you've had that moment, you've had your Jonah moment, and there's been plenty of times since that moment where you continue to struggle, that the mountaintop experience in the belly is gone and passion fades, and who are you now, and what difference does it make, and where is God in the midst of my life, in the confusion or frustration or difficulty. So that's where we're going to go for the rest of this time. Because if you remember your creator, as the preacher says, we've got to both remember who God is, as, as he and the rest of Scripture informs us, but we've also got to remember who he isn't. And that has a lot of importance, especially for us who are on the other side of your Jonah belly moment, uh, and where you're wondering who is God, and what is he doing, and where am I at, and what's the point of all of it, maybe it's, I'd say at least as important as remembering who God is, that we also remember who he is not. So, Scripture informs us. There's a lot that Scripture has to say about remembering who your Creator isn't, and keeping that fresh in your mind and in your heart as you, go, as you go forward. God knew that this would be a struggle from the garden forward, remembering uh, who he is and who he isn't. So he lays out a number of ways, a number of different ways that we can interact with him and be reminded and keep things straight. One of the things that he did, we have to go all the way back to Exodus to see it and be reminded of it, is giving us the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Far more, far more going on than just a, a moral or legalistic do and don't list, okay? So we're, we're going to consider parts of, uh, actually just the first two commandments. I don't have those on the slide, but they are uh, in Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to read just a little bit for you this morning to give us an understanding of why this is so important, okay? We don't read the Ten Commandments every day. Uh, maybe we should, especially the first three or four because of what they tell us about the nature of God and our response to Him. So the first commandment, Exodus chapter 20, uh, God introduces Himself again. Uh, And he says in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before you. So there's no other God before or even beside or around or any place near God. It's only God. But the second commandment sometimes gets confused with the first because it sounds similar. And they really are connected, but and they need each other, but it's different. So you shall have no other gods before me. And he also says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, 
or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God. And he goes on to list the consequences of compromising. So he stresses, you shall not make an image or any likeness of God to bow down and serve. So the first commandment, no other God. It's God alone. There's one God. Okay? But the second one takes us another step that sometimes we forget about. So what I think he's saying in that commandment is, have nothing else that represents God as you would like him to be. And that's real important for our discussion this morning, remembering who God isn't. Did you catch that? Nothing else that represents God as you would have him to be or as you would like him to be. Another likeness. God, if you could only be more like this, whatever this is, whatever this image is that you create, maybe physically, for those who had idols, physical, real, actual idols, yeah, but you don't have to have something you created with your hands. It could be something that your mind and your heart puts together, another likeness. God, I'll worship you if you're like this. Are you, feel, are you with me so far? Okay? That is the second commandment, and we've been breaking it ever since, but we break it sometimes in really nice church religious ways, in subtle ways, in ways that you really got to be mindful of to, to keep remembering who God is and who God isn't. Because the likenesses that we create are always very nice and acceptable in our culture. Same thing with ancient Israel as they enter the promised land. They're surrounded by cultures that had idols, that had likenesses. And it was so easy to get sucked into the existing cultures, the existing standards for God. God knew that. That's why God said, you are mine. I set you apart. Make sure that you know who I am and who I'm not. So, we'll look at Exodus 32. Golden calf isn't as weird as you might think. So, uh, and it is kind of weird. I remember thinking, uh, looking at Exodus chapter 32, uh, Man, these people are stupid and impatient. Sure, you have to wait a little bit for Moses to come down from the mountain, but you've already got this shared experience of how great God is and how God led the people out on these miraculous, undeniable, miraculous things that they've seen and heard. Just wait a little bit. Why do you start making, melting down stuff and making a calf? Do you ever read that and get frustrated? How are they so stupid so fast, making a likeness uh, for themselves? And how is Aaron uh, even dumber, right? He knows. He knows. He's a leader. And they, and they coerce. Really what they do is they put him on the spot where he has to produce for them what they want. So he, content, he well, let's read the passage. I think I've got this up here. Uh, it's only, only a snapshot here, verses 2 through 5. So Aaron said to them, this is after they corner him, they put him on a spot. He really has to do what they want or he's in trouble. So take out the rings of gold that are in your, the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters that they probably got from the Egyptians as they, as they left Egypt. So that's, you know, they should have this. It makes sense. And bring them to me. So all the people took out the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it 
with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Ugh. All right, let's go on. And they said, these, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast, not to these gods. What does he say? A feast to the Lord, the God, Yahweh. So what does he do? First of all, he's saying, these are your gods. There's only one golden calf, right? So why is it plural? And scholars debate about that. What's going on with the language? What I, what I think, I think it's fairly obvious. They had multiple gods in Egypt, all these different idols that were all around them all the time. God calls them out away from that to be his only people, and they would only respond and worship him. And Aaron's just trying to make them happy. All of these gods, they're all wrapped up in this golden calf. We don't have to make all these different individual gods. And the calf was also an image that he stole from ancient Egypt, so that kind of sweetens the deal. All these gods are this god right here. And in fact, he then makes it a whole syncretistic thing because it's not just those gods, but he connects the worship of the calf and everything that they knew in the past with the God. We're going to make tomorrow be a feast and a festival so they've already heard about some of these things. And now he's just saying he's wrapping it all together. It's all good. It's all here. You've got this likeness of the God. There's nothing else that we need. And how do the people respond? I don't know the rest of the passage on there, but how do they respond? It's orgy time! That's how they respond. It's endless drinking orgy party time around the golden calf. And we're going to stop there with the story because here's the deal. Truth is, we're like them. And we're always one bad worship decision away from an all-out orgy. Now, that sounds really weird. <laughs> You're wondering, what am I saying? Now, think about it. You know, they, they, it, this looks so foreign, Exodus, you know, making a golden calf and the weird party that happens, and, and they're primitive and uh, backwater hayseeds, right, you know, from a different bygone era. But it's easy to say that. Think about the lesson that's here. We don't react typically with golden idols and orgies. In God's eyes, it's no different. If we know who he is, we've also got to keep fresh in our hearts and minds as we worship who he isn't. And if we combine who he is with other idols, because it seems so right, and if we're not careful to discern what is right and what isn't, what is God, what is the worship of God and what isn't, if we're not careful with the details, then we give our hearts away, we give our lives away, we give our bodies away to other gods, and it's the same, it's the spiritual equivalent of what happened in the book of Exodus. Now, do I have your attention? This is important stuff for the church, remembering who he is and who he isn't is more demanding than what you may think and all the more necessary for God's people to take note and to be careful to not 
compromise any part of who we are in the worship of the living God. In any way, give ourselves over to something or someone else and think that it's okay when it's really not. Now, let me jump here to the New Testament real quick. Um, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is talking to the Corinthians about, in their culture, idolatry and the pagan worships and the you know, worship and the, and the temples around them in Corinth and other places in the known world. That was still a visible and actual uh, thing going on and that you were supposed to be a part of. And even probably your business required you to be part of as far as the temple practices, the occult stuff, and whatever. So people new to the faith in a very pagan uh, and immoral place like Corinth, they needed to know, okay, now that I'm really following Christ, who is he? And all these things around me that I used to not care about, but now I'm, I'm, I'm feeling convicted that it matters. The culture around me, certainly, ah, there's question marks, and what do I do now in my newfound faith? So much of this letter is trying to open their eyes to the differences and the need to discern, and just like us today, the culture around us is swirling with different options for idols, and we've got to be mindful and discerning so that we don't mix up our faith with something that truly is not of Christ. So that's, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, which then leads us kind of into a whole other sermon. So I'm going to save you from that, okay? Uh, there, the more you get into it, oh man, this is another outline. But I can't do that to you, and I'm not going to do that to you, but uh, there's the outline. Okay, <laughs> that'll surface another time, uh, probably, when, when I'm preaching. But Exodus is for our instruction. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 says, Now these things, as Paul's talking about the past to, to believers, maybe believers have no, no clue about Exodus or anything that's going on there. He says, These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. On us, in other words, we are now responsible as the church to learn from the past. We can't just ignore that because we're different now or we know better or whatever. No. Remember what people had to go through and learn from it. It's from our instruction. So that Exodus passage is for our instruction today is what he's saying. And then he says these three, these three different things. Flee from idolatry, verse 14. Uh, glorifying God in everything, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all the glory of God, verse 31. But I want to just comment on one of these things, verses 14 through 18, and what it is that you're participating in. It has everything to do with both, remembering who God is and who God isn't. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He's finishing that first point. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves, what I say, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? He's talking about communion and fellowship and eating together, okay? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread who we, who, uh, excuse me, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. 
Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifice. Uh, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? He keeps stressing that one word, right? You heard it three times. Participating or participants. He's going from idolatry to then establishing concrete things that the church should do and shouldn't do. One of those things he comments on in chapter 11 is the Lord's Supper. Every time we have communion here at Sidney Hill, I read a few verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is the precursor to that. Okay, so when you come to the table, specifically the bread and the cup, we participate. We don't do that as just another religious function, whatever, mindlessly going through it. We participate with everything. We reject the idolatry. We reject whatever is brewing or swirling in the culture around us. We don't just say, oh yeah, that's something important. We put ourselves into it. We participate. What Christ did, we recognize, is something he did for us. It's something that's in us. Why else do we actually drink the cup? Why, why else do we eat the bread? There's nothing magical about that, but we participate. We're, every month when we do that here, we actually take it in and drink it and eat it. We're saying, I participate with you. Jesus, you died for me. And because you died, I choose to die for myself. That's participation. When Jesus lives, he rose again, right? That's why, we, that's why we do any of this. He lives today. And as we remember Jesus living, we say, I live for you, Jesus. I participate in your life right now through the end of time. Participation in Christ with Christ is everything for so many reasons, but the main one today is this. The more we participate in Him, the less we participate in everything else. You got that? And that's huge in remembering who Jesus is and who He isn't. You can't just see things from a distance. You've got to get in it with all of you if you're a follower of Christ. Participating in what Jesus has done is critical for life in Him. Now, it's not limited to just communion and that experience. That's what this passage is teaching us. But participation in Jesus and in the Spirit and responding and being faithful in all these different ways and all these different things the New Testament shows us is so important for us today as it gives us life and as it separates us from other idols, it's remembering who Jesus is, alive and active in me, and also who he isn't. So I'm going to wrap up with this. These, you see a list there, are gifts to help us remember. They are things that we should be actively participating in, not as, as a follower of Jesus. It doesn't earn you any special privilege before Christ. You know that. I'm not saying that. But as we do these things, we get more life from him. We understand better what it is he's doing. We experience the things that he wants us to. And we also more clearly separate ourselves from all those other influences and even idols. Communion we talked about and baptism but also these other things, we, we commonly refer to communion and baptism as ordinances, okay? Because there's things that Jesus did himself and directly commanded that we do and we participate in. But also fasting, 
Sabbath rest, scripture study, the giving, not just of, of finances and, re, and resources in that way, but the giving of our very lives. If there's any New Testament principle for giving, it's to give everything. Life, breath, everything that you have. Okay, that's the challenge in, in Christ. Discipleship, uh, being mentored or discipled to become more like Jesus. What is the Great Commission? To make disciples. That's not a, another option. We all should engage in that. And then also being a witness of Christ. That's the other thing that Jesus says. You will go and you will be my witnesses. Those are things that we've got to take seriously when it comes down to uh, following Christ. So, I don't know why my phone is making a noise. I'm going to shut that off. That's the weirdest thing that's happened to me yet. Okay, so as we finish, I'm asking for your help with something. Uh, as we go into February, we're wrapping up Ecclesiastes, I want to do kind of a mini-series on why participating in these things give life and are so critical for us. And what I'm asking for you is this. If you've experienced and learned something in one, even if it's just in one of those areas, some way that God has used that to to inspire you and motivate you, to move you forward, you forward in your faith. I want to hear about it. The elders want to hear about it. If you even so crazy, you would actually stand up and talk about it in front of the church. Great. You don't have to do that. Uh, even if it's uh, something simple or short that you've learned, uh, that you could put in an email that uh, you'd be willing to share with the church. The, uh, one of the beauty, beauties of being the church is we need each other. And in these areas, we can learn from each other. That's important. Uh, some of these things I'm very passionate about more than others. And you probably already picked up on that. And that's, who, that's just who I am. So I'm saying I need you <laughs> to help us make the next step in what we're teaching on so much more valuable. So you don't have to get up front. If you would be willing to, and we could talk, dialogue together up front, that'd be great. You don't have to do that. Share something. Maybe you've learned something from somebody else, and you can throw them under the spiritual bus and, and you know, give me their name, <laughs> and then I'll go after them. Okay. Uh, but maybe there's somebody else you know of that you've benefited from, that's, that's enlightened you and, pu and pushed you forward, moved you forward uh, in, in your life in Christ. These things are so important that we take seriously and we participate in, not just for the glory of God and, and no way to try to earn your salvation, but in response to salvation, enjoying Him more and distancing ourselves from the idols of this age. So participate with me. You see the email there. Uh, you've also got the, the, the bulletin, so it's got our phone number and whatever. If you haven't used that before, this is a great opportunity to start using it, okay? So think about that this week, prayerfully respond to it, and we'll talk more as you uh, communicate. Let's, let's close with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, again, we pause and give you thanks for uh, the power of the truth of your living and active word. I pray, Lord, that we would leave from here all the more interested, all the more desirous of a walk with you uh, that is meaningful, that's deep that gives us increasing ways to rejoice and even move outward and be more bold in our faith and our understanding. Lord Jesus, we consider this mega theme in your word of remembering you in all of the things that you've done and continue to do that enliven our hearts, 
cause us to respond to you with a deeper sense of wonder and awe at a God who would stop and choose to love me and send his son to die for me, to release me so that I give all the blessings that you pour out on me. It's too much at times, Lord, to even be capable of believing that you're that good. And that you give us these ways to respond in you, to find more joy in you, to find more life in you. So Lord, enable us as a church to lean on each other, to teach each other, to to spur each other on towards the kind of love and good deeds that pour forth from a life that is is given over to you in joy and praise. So uh, fill our voices uh, again uh, this morning as we end our time in worship, in song and enliven us, Lord, to all that you have that maybe we're neglecting uh, that we can participate in. Leave us empty, Lord, if we're not doing that. And then, Lord, fill us as we continue or maybe even as we begin to respond to what you have given. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you're looking for more of our sermon audio, check out our previous podcast, Tomb Runners. For upcoming events, check out our website at mycityonahill.org. Bruce Bentley will be back next week to continue the series, Finding Jesus in Ecclesiastes. 